morning's message was titled, A Believing, quote, Unbeliever, from Acts chapter 8. We learned that misplaced faith and misguided motivation are the twin enemies of lost people, especially religious lost people, lost church members, if you will. It's not that unbelievers are without faith. They certainly do believe something. It's just that the focus or the object of that faith is placed in the wrong thing, the wrong person, the wrong um, creed, philosophy. And it's because, to a great degree, their depraved hearts, they're depraved if they're lost, are selfish, self-interest is at the center, pride, that sort of thing. And we learn that genuine saving faith includes repentance, turning from one's own way, belief system, idols, flesh, whatever the world uh, uh, to which that person has imbibed, and a turning to God's way in the gospel, a conversion. And again, we see, we continue in Acts chapter 8 this evening and see that illustrated with a message that I've titled, The Sovereignty of God in Evangelism. The Sovereignty of God in evangelism, in our evangelism episode series from the book of Acts, if you'd make your way to Acts chapter 8, verses 26, actually. We left off with verse 25 this morning, and picking up to verse 26 through the end of the chapter in this message, the, evangel- the sovereignty of God in evangelism, Philip the deacon, the Ethiopian eunuch, um, the featured players in uh, this New Testament narrative. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 36. And an angel of the Lord spoke unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south, unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, had come to Jerusalem to worship. He was returning, and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit of the Lord said unto Philip, Go near, join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran there to him, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he besought Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and like a, uh, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water, a certain body of water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? In other words, can I get baptized? Now, I understand in the next couple, three verses, some translations leave this out. There, there is um, controversy about what should be included and what, what should not be in Uh, ancient manuscripts regarding translating this into English in this particular passage. Uh, Just know, with the science and the art of textual criticism, there's every reason to include what I'm going to be reading. Whether it's there or whether it's not there doesn't change the theology of Scripture, the theology of the doctrine of salvation. But I continue reading. Verse 37. 
Verse 36, what hinders me to be baptized? Verse 37, and Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they both went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him, i.e. scriptural baptism by immersion. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord called away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. What is evangelism? Uh, I came across a definition by the 1918 Archbishop's Committee of the Church of England, and they wrote, to evangelize is to present Christ, Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, that men shall come to put their trust in God through him, to accept him as their Savior, serve him as their King in the fellowship of his church. Now, that's a good, comprehensive definition of evangelism, what the church is to be about. We here at Redbridge in recent years, many years ago, kind of coined a a very truncated version of that, a very succinct um, one phrase of evangelism and missions is shining a light in a dark place. Did I have that up there? No, I didn't include that. I'm sorry. Shining a light in a dark place. This text was the very first pulpit worship service uh, message I'd ever preached in my life. I think it was in 1982. Could have, could have been in 1981. Now, I had done some street preaching up until that time, taught many Sunday school classes and the like, but I was asked to preach my own father's baptismal service down at Cleveland Baptist Church in Cleveland, Missouri, I think in 1981, 82. He came to know the Lord as a, as a, uh, as a, a, a just a lost religionist um, when he was 50 years old three years after I got saved, seeing my life, hearing my testimony, attending a Bible study that I taught. He got saved, listening to the old Oliver B. Green sermons on the radio. Anybody ever listen to Oliver B. Green? Hold your hand up. A few of you have. Now, I'm dating myself because he's been with the Lord, Oliver B. Green, probably for 50 years, but they continued playing his sermons for many years after that. Uh, And my dad listened to that and was saved. And then a year or two after that, he came to the point of understanding the need for scriptural baptism. And I had the honor, the privilege of preaching his baptismal service. And I preached this very text um, some 40 years uh, 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 ago. And three years after that, he, uh, he went home to be with the Lord by way of a car wreck. So, the sovereignty of God in evangelism. Let's speak to that very subject. First of all, we see in this passage that God initiates the internal touch for an unbeliever to become a believer. Now, I've alluded to that theologically. We see it really played out in the narrative of this passage. If a person is going to become uh, become a believer, if anyone is going to become a believer, God must touch the heart, the soul, the, the, the waken the dead spirit, if you will. God must take the initiative Uh, And really, it's the whole idea, uh, that whole idea of having a goal. Well, this year, uh, uh, my goal and my prayer is that I'm going to be, I'm going to see 12 people saved uh, during during, uh, this next year. One, uh, an average of one per month. Folks, if if I may, uh, that's ridiculous. Because I can't have a goal of something which I can't control. Now, I can have a goal and to say, I, I, I purpose to witness uh, to 
12 of my neighbors this year of giving a full gospel witness. Now, I can have that as a goal. Uh, I can set my, ante- my spiritual antenna so that I'm, uh, and, and my radar so that I'm really uh, uh, lasering uh, in on my neighbors and this neighbor and this neighbor and this neighbor with the desire to actually present the gospel message to a dozen of them over the next calendar year. That would be fine. Because that's something that I'll do or I'll not do. I'll look for that opportunity or I won't look for that opportunity. That's great. But to say that it's a goal that someone be saved, that is not my doing. God does the saving work. God save us from ever thinking that our performance, our intellect, our understanding, our knowledge, our winsomeness, cleverness, or any such thing is going to move a soul toward him. He must extend his hand for the internal touch of that unbeliever. How does he do it? Well, we see in the text that he awakens the spiritually dead. Look at verses 27 and 28 at the end. Uh, This man from Ethiopia was the queen's secretary of the treasury, if you will. He was sitting and returning and sitting in his chariot reading Isaiah. Something had begun to stir in his depravity, in his spiritual deadness, that all of a sudden, for no rhyme or reason known to him, and and of course he went to Jerusalem, and so the stirring had already begun even before this point because he went there with the intention of worshiping, of finding God, of of knowing God, of of, uh, is there hope beyond the grave? And folks, I'm telling you, in 1977, as an utter... uh, just gutter dweller myself, I didn't have, I didn't even know to have a thought of needing the Lord, let alone a desire to, sweeping across my soul in the course of just a short amount of time is an emptiness, is a dread, uh, is a deadness, and my life was going just fine. I mean, I'm 19 years old, and I had the world, a uh, tiger by the tail. I mean, I was, uh, I was as it were, uh, uh, doing what I wanted to do. Had money coming in, food uh, on the table as I was active duty in the military. Didn't have, didn't have to pay rent, didn't have to pay for food, didn't have to pay for medicine. Uh, just spend my, my money on whatever I wanted that would take care of me, completely self-absorbed, with no thought of God or anything, until supernaturally he blew, as it were, upon my heart, with a sense of my lost condition and my hopelessness to the degree that that I said as a 19-year-old, is this all there is in life? Isn't there more than this? You mean this is the, the epitome of satisfaction in life, just living in the gutter? Um, God woke me up. And so because of man's separation because of sin and man's inability to reach out to God on his own, God must intervene. And this is a significant theological point because it means, folks, that I don't have to produce. I don't as a soul winner. In fact, not only do I not have to produce, I can't produce. I cannot wake up someone's dead spirit. You you, you appreciate that? I can't do that. God must do that. Now, there are some things that I can do and that he calls me to do, but making it happen um, cannot be my, my position in life. This man was important. He was the secretary of the treasury for a country, and he recognized 
he did not have good standing before the Lord. So God must take the initiative to awaken, to quicken, to use the uh, Ephesians 2.1 phrasing, to quicken, to wake up that person to his deadness. Secondly, God has to orchestrate the circumstances. I said uh, uh, you could have a goal of going to your neighbors, seeking to share the Lord, uh, and, and, and you desire to do that one a month or one a day or, or however often, uh, and you say, well, isn't that you orchestrating the circumstances? No. He orchestrated the circumstances in moving me into that neighborhood to be by these people. See, he sovereignly did that. Uh, it wasn't just at random that I landed there. It was God orchestrating the circumstances. And he put you in the family that you're in because maybe grandma needs a gospel witness or maybe your parents do or he put you in the classroom or in the whatever extended family, whoever, whatever your sphere is of influence and gospel witness, God has taken the initiative to put you there as a Bible-believing Christian to be able to witness to those around you. It's not a coincidence In other words, this encounter with Philip and the man from Ethiopia was not a coincidence. God caused providentially the roads to cross their intersection, for them to have an intersection in each of their lives so that the gospel would be presented. So Red Bridger, it's almost a certainty that God has opened the gospel door for you, for me, to present Christ to someone in recent times, weeks or months. It's almost a certainty if you're a believer, you say, preacher, how do you know that? Because he's left you here. <laughs> you're here, amen? You're breathing, you're thinking, uh, you're, you're uh, uh, active in this world, and therefore, by virtue of that, that must mean he has a plan to use you and to use me. And part of the plan is uh, that we would be fruitful and uh, see, uh, see the gospel seed shared with those who need to know him. I'd suggest that if you are not sharing Christ at all, now, be careful. Get out your nitroglycerin tablet. You may need it on this one. If you are not sharing Christ to some degree on some measure of regular schedule, the issue is with you. The issue is with me. If I'm not a soul winner chronically not a soul winner if I'm chronically not evangelizing has God become impotent no are people still lost yes then if there's not that bridge if there's not if there's not that connection I have to look at me first are you all with me on this do you hear what I'm saying Uh, I I know that's a a big pill to swallow and I don't want it to be a guilt complex I want it to be an exhortation unto obedience in him So, look for those circumstances. If you're here and breathing and and saved, then he wants you to be out there in the field broadcasting the seed. So, be looking for him to, in fact, open that door. He orchestrates the uh, the circumstances. Uh, Thirdly, God draws to himself. Not only does he awaken the sinner, not only does he put someone in that sinner's path, a gospel influence, a gospel witness, he then draws the lost person to himself. The blinders were lifted for this man from Ethiopia. The light began to shine 
in his heart, for God was drawing him, wooing him to himself. In fact, uh, in uh, late 1976, active duty in the Navy, when I began to sense an emptiness that all, all the being a party animal and all the just wacko living that I could do, when I was filled up with it, and it, just didn't, it just didn't do the trick anymore. It didn't flip the switch anymore. I began looking around for what might fill my soul. I'd never experienced anything like this in my life. I never had a, I mean, you've heard me say I'm an inch deep and a mile wide. Well, back in those days, I was a micron deep. <laughs> That's about as deep as I got back in those days. And so for me to have a, a philosophical or a theological thought was startling, <laughs> frankly. Uh, and uh, I started investigating. I looked into transcendental meditation. Uh, and I called the number in the newspaper. That here's where you can find satisfaction in your soul and uh, hope for the rest of your life and joy and fulfillment. And blah. So, well, that's what I need. I can't find it all that I'm doing. And so, uh, thankfully, it was back in the days when there, you just dialed you know, a rotary dial phone uh, uh, and no one answered the phone. And I never called back again. God's providence in drawing me to himself. But he began that stirring in my soul until he allowed my me to intersect with a Bible believer, an, a, a fellow sailor, a, a man in the Navy, and who shared with me the gospel. And so the Lord will draw the lost to himself or they're not going to come. In fact, John six forty four said, no man can come to me. You can't come to him except he be drawn to Christ by my Father. In fact, John 3, 8 makes it clear that the wind, it blows wherever it wills. It it seems to be capricious, just on its own. It blows here, it blows there, it blows all over. And um, you hear the sound, but you can't tell where it's coming from or where it's going. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Just the, uh, the sovereign choice of God to blow upon the heart of that lost person. Maybe he'll do that uh, in and through a preaching service like this morning. In fact, Kathy and I were talking on the way uh, home uh, today. And uh, she, uh, she expressed a measure of um, just surprise, I guess, that folks did not openly uh, get saved. And I've had that, uh, that thought before because it was a very gospel-laden uh, service in Zach's testimony and the preaching from the Word and all and the, uh, the uh, visual uh, testimony in baptism. And I said, I'm believing that we have not heard and seen the fruit that's going to come from this morning. I really do believe uh, in a month, in a year, someone's going to hearken back. You remember that worship service? God started stirring in my soul then that I was lost. And, and then we'll see. So don't give up on, on that. Uh, and God's not too early and he's not late. He's right on time. He will draw to himself. So the pressure's off. I don't have to produce in my strength, ability, my, my intelligence, my understanding or anything. He will do that work. But he is going to use me in doing that. Uh, he's going to use me in drawing people to himself. I like what theologian J.I. Packer wrote. He said, it is right to recognize our responsibility to engage in aggressive evangelism. It is right to desire the conversion of unbelievers. It is right to want one's presentation of the gospel to be as clear and forcible as possible. But it is not right when we take it on ourselves to do more than God has given to us. 
uh, us to do. It is not right when we regard ourselves as responsible for securing converts and look to our own enterprise and techniques to accomplish only what God can accomplish. I, I, I chuckled this morning when uh, uh, my wife shared a testimony during the Sunday school opening of uh, after the memorial service for her mom, which was totally gospel-laden, uh, how she went up to uh, three young adults, uh, one that she had just met, and, and a couple of them, uh, she took uh, the cheeks in her hands just like this and just put, put her, her hands right on either side of, of this person's cheeks and said, it's time for you to knock it off in life. It's time. You've heard the gospel message. You've been trained in this. You know this. And you know you're not living for God. And I'm calling you right now. It's time to turn from your own way and turn down. I mean, I I chuckled this morning because I'm thinking, yes, it's about time someone got serious with folks who are just messing around with God. It is not wise to monkey with God. Amen. And some folks just need to hear it very straight and clear. And she, uh, to God be the glory, brought that. Christians are responsible to be soul winners. The lost are responsible to respond to the gospel. In other words, it's the issue uh, about divine sovereignty. If God is the one who chooses, who elects in eternity past... Who, uh, who quickens that, wakes up that person to his or her need, who blows upon the heart, who draws to himself. If all of that is true in Scripture, it's crystal clear that it is true. If the doctrines of grace are actual, that man is totally depraved, that God in eternity past has unconditionally elected some to salvation, that in the course of time Christ died for those particular folks, and he woos irresistibly those to himself whom he has called, predestined. And in fact, they persevere in the faith because of what he has done. If all of that is true, then how can human responsibility also be true? That is, the soul that sins, it shall die. And God commands all men everywhere to repent. How can divine sovereignty and human responsibility ever be reconciled? I'll leave you on that thought with Spurgeon's response when he was asked, Pastor Spurgeon, how do you reconcile in salvation divine sovereignty and human responsibility? And his response was, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. You see, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not contradictory. They're complementary. They're complementary God does all the work, man is responsible. Saved man is responsible to communicate that, and lost man is responsible to respond in the affirmative to the gospel. Both of those are true. Both of those are taught in Scripture. So Spurgeon said, I don't reconcile friends. These are not contradictory of one another. They're complementary of one another. But I have a calling. I have a responsibility to, in fact, share. So God draws to himself. He will use you as a vehicle for that. Fourthly, God grants repentance and faith. Somewhere, uh, notice I said somewhere between verses 35 and 36. Look in the white space between verses 35 and 36. The eunuch got saved there. Because verse 35, Philip preached unto him Jesus. 
verse 36, he wanted to get baptized. Somewhere in there, he acknowledged Christ and received him. Um, The secretary of the treasury from Ethiopia got saved. What happened? Well, Acts 13, 48 says this is what happened. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Notice it does not say as many as believed were then ordained to eternal life. No, uh, because that would put salvation, the ultimate uh, uh, outcome of salvation, under the authority of a lost sinner. No, the people who got saved were ordained to eternal life, and so we see how the, the, the machination of that plays out. God knows his own. He calls them. He draws them. He grants repentance and faith to respond to the gospel message. Okay, so the first point then was that God initiates the call uh, to salvation uh, in the lives of lost people. Secondly, God employs an external tool, namely you, and I've alluded to this, for an unbeliever to become a believer. Um, And this point in no way contradicts the other. Again, uh, flip sides of the same coin, divine sovereignty, human responsibility, and my responsibility uh, in the elect realizing the salvation they've been given and granted is to communicate that. It's to, you see, folks, it's not that the elect just get saved without the gospel. No, they get saved in Christ. They are placed in Christ through believing. And the way that they believe is me sharing. And so, therefore, the Christian must obey the call to be a soul winner. Verses 25 and through 27. Notice an angel told Philip to go in verse 26. Arise and go unto uh, Gaza. Notice in verse 27, he arose and went uh, and he ran. uh, Look at verse 30. And Philip ran there to him. In other words, he enthusiastically, aggressively went in the, the crossroads of where a soul-winning encounter would take place. And he, he already had that mindset. Because if you'll notice, in verse 12 of the same chapter, look at verse 12 of the same chapter, but when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So Philip was, he was as exciting a believer and as excited a believer as was Stephen in the previous chapter both spirit-filled laymen. These were not, Stephen and Philip were not apostles. They weren't pastors. They were laymen uh, in the church at Jerusalem that God was using to communicate the gospel message. And a multitude of people came to know the Lord. He presided over an incredible harvest of souls. Now, I read this recently, and boy, very recently, and it stuck. I think I even, uh, I think I even included this, this, this quote in my notes as recently as Friday evening, I think, just uh, two nights ago. And it's what the view is of the church, of the local church, toward evangelism, sharing the gospel with the lost. And Ernest Pickering wrote, a church which doesn't evangelize will fossilize grow hard, grow old, grow calloused, grow indifferent, 
not be living, not be breathing, not be multiplying, just kind of dying off. Um, what did the Spirit of God through the Apostle John warn the church at Ephesus? You've got all these things going on, but what did they do? You have left your first love. If you don't repent, I'll remove the candlestick. Anybody attended First Church of Ephesus of late? It hasn't existed for millennia, at least for one millennia and probably uh, many, many, many centuries after that. The church which says we are content, we're in our holy huddle, us four close the door no more, we're at ease in Zion, might as well write down we will be fossilizing soon. Uh, and uh, you, know, uh, you know how enthusiastic I am uh, about babies here at Redbridge. Don't you know that? Have you ever heard me glory in the Lord about that? Uh, and, and parenthetically, <clears throat> there's not nearly enough young ladies, um, married ladies, uh, carrying little ones these days. I've checked, and we need, oh, many, many, many more. That's another message, but... <laughs> thought I'd just add that. <laughs> but, see, see, when you're 66, you can say these things. <laughs> I wish someone would have been saying it. It probably was. I don't know that I was listening. Uh, um, I had four. At least uh, 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 my wife and I doubled our, uh, our, our presence in the, in the world. So uh, whatever that's worth. But the issue is babies born into the kingdom. I want to be a father of that as well. Amen. That is seeing, you know, having sons and daughters in the faith, as the Apostle Paul used that terminology. <clears throat> Christian must obey the call. Philip did. Also, the Christian must not try to strategize for success. Look at 29 and 30. Spirit, go near. God created the circumstance. Philip ran. Heard him read Isaiah. Do you understand? Uh, he, he wasn't trying to uh, make something happen. He was playing the hand he was dealt, if you will. He was going through the open door God had provided for an evangelistic encounter. The results are up to God. The outcome is something God has to do. You'll notice the eagerness, though, of Philip in verse 30 when he ran to him. And I have to ask myself, am I burdened for souls or do I at times, this is rhetorical because sure, I know that I have thought that a, a lost person, a down and outer, a street person, a beggar, something like that, is bothersome. Can we, can we talk? You hear what I'm saying? Uh, lost people have messes. They're, they have messy lives. And if I jump into that, I'm going to have expenditure of time and money and effort. And on and on and on. But couldn't it be, might it be, that in fact, God preordained, foreordained me for such a time as this. Couldn't I have been an Esther in that situation? Amen? For such a time as this. I want to use you, he says to his child. And so I have to be very careful about that. I would counsel you the same. And so it's not strategy. It's not a tactic. It's carrying a burden for the lost. Day in, day out, carrying a burden for the lost. 
And then finally, I actually have to present Christ. I share with you uh, about engaging uh, this 93-year-old lady. Um, I'll say a couple of days ago. I don't remember what day it was. And uh, telling me all about her life. And it was very interesting, frankly. And I said, but what is your hope for tomorrow? For eternity? Because we're going to die. And, and it, it was no hope. It, uh, it was nothing. There was nothing substantial whatsoever. It wasn't depending on religion, uh, on good works. It was just like, oh, it, whatever will be, will be kind of a thing. And I said, I've crossed over the top of the mountain, and you have too, uh, as far as timeline goes. I would not want to enter eternity with just a carefree, I don't know, as if that is secure. I want to know, and I do know, and you can know of eternal life in Christ, in the Word of God. And so we must present Him, not just, really, that's a no brainer, but the devil would be happy for us to just talk about social issues or argue minor points of theology, discuss anything other than the, the finished work of Christ on the cross, Him crucified. Christ in you, the hope of glory, anything but that. He is perfectly fine with us dishing out religion, good works, uh, inviting people to church, and, and, uh, and all the rest. Um, I shared this uh, anecdote uh, one time, I think. But uh, when I pastored in Sedalia, Missouri, 38 years ago, for a short while, there, there was a young man, uh, 20, 22-year-old, very decent, good guy by worldly standards, just uh, uh, articulate, respectful, uh, educated, motivated. I mean, really uh, someone that you would just think very highly of in a lost. I mean, the world, uh, the world would highly esteem this very young man. He was going uh, with one of the gals in, in the church I pastored, and I talked to her about that, and she ought not be uh, uh, courting him, and, and, and she knew why. And uh, it, was, um, it was platonic, but it was heading toward, toward more romance. And so he attended church uh, uh, every time the doors were open, every sermon, and I, for the first few months I was there. And one day uh, I went over to his house. It was pouring down. It was pouring, raining cats and dogs. You all know what I'm talking about? The toads were being, were being drowned. You know, that's how bad it was. It was torrential rain. And I pulled in to his apartment complex parked outside, uh, in 50 feet of, from the parking, parking lot to his door, I was, water was absolutely, I was soaked through and through. I knocked on the door. He didn't know I was coming. He answered the door. I called his name. I didn't say anything. The rain is pouring down on me. And he's standing inside, and I called his name, and I said, your house is burning down, and there's nothing you can do about it. And he dropped his head, and I said, I know. I've known that for a long time. And he got saved in five minutes because God had been stirring and stirring and stirring and stirring in his heart. The point I'm making is I didn't invite him back to church, tell him how nice it was at his church. I wanted him to face eternity with a two-by-four across his face by saying, your house is burning down all around you. And you're in it, and there's nothing you can do about it. 
he got saved with that gospel witness. <laughs> Been a lot of prep work of preaching Jesus up to that point. You all hear what I'm saying? So there are folks in your lives who know your testimony. You've witnessed to them. You've shared with them. Uh, and maybe it's time to take them by the cheeks like Kathy did. Take the two by four and say, look, you are mocking God. You are spitting on the cross. You are defying the Spirit of God if you have any thought in you of being right with God apart from the gospel. Now, I am not saying be ugly at all. You might, that might sound like being ugly. I'm telling you, with God is my witness. Kathy was all but in tears when she took those, that niece and nephew by the face. And I mean, she was right in their face saying, knock it off. Quit monkeying with God. And, and so if you have that kind of burden and you have that kind of access, then preach Christ forcefully, aggressively. You're not creating the circumstance. God has put you in that situation. You all with me on this? There are times for that. There are times to come running up to someone's house, beating on the door, get out, get out. The place is on fire. That's, that would be a good thing. That would be commendable. And so maybe there's someone in your life just like that who needs a very straight word about eternal life with no beating around the bush. Church tradition has suggested that this man from Ethiopia was the first convert in Africa and the very beginning seed of a harvest of souls for hundreds, hundreds of years in Africa that this very one and who was it who won him, who influenced him? Uh, not the Apostle Paul, not a great church planner, a layman from the Church of Jerusalem commissioned to go. Think about it, folks. Someone witnessed to Martin Luther. Someone witnessed to John Calvin. Someone witnessed to Fanny Crosby. Are you with me? And so maybe you will be that one that you will share and the light will come on the shackles will be removed and faith will be given from the Lord to believe. Saving faith for the gospel. You don't know how God will use you. I don't know how God will use me. But he will use you. You are his workmanship, Ephesians 2.10, created in Christ Jesus unto what? Good works. And evangelism is a good work. May God bless you as you do. Lord, I'm thankful for this, your word, and the truth of it and the power of your word, the sovereignty of God in evangelism. I'm so thankful that I don't have to produce. I can't produce. Only you can birth a soul. And yet, you want your people, you want me, to be involved in planting the seed and watering the seed through believing prayer and seeing you bring in a harvest. May that come to pass in our lives. And Lord, would you allow, uh, even in these, in these days, to see your people, any number of us, to be used of you as a conduit a gospel witness, for a gospel witness to share you with those around us who are lost. Bless as only you can with fruit, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold, according to your sovereign plan for our lives. Be glorified. Lord Jesus, in your name, amen.